Hey, y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes, and man, thanks for persevering through us uh, or with us through uh, a different time, uh, <laughs> some trouble with the slides, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us, and especially if it's your first time here, we want to say especially welcome. Um, we're going through a four-part series. This is the fourth of four uh, part series on images of the church, and we're basically just doing that because my assumption when you walk through those doors and you sing some of these songs is that you're at least interested in knowing who God is and what He's like and what He thinks about and how He acts and what He loves or doesn't love. And if you really want to know what those things are, then you should know what He thinks about the church because God loves the church, He thinks on the church, He acts for the church. And so we want to spend a little bit of time this semester looking at what the church is and what it does and what's actually means to be a part of the church. And so tonight we're wrapping up this series and we're talking about the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And so we're in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 through 27 tonight. And this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would make it not any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body either. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of, in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are te- treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Let me pray for us when we get started. Father, we do thank you um, that you have given your body uh, to the world. You've given your son, Jesus, in the flesh for humanity. And uh, Lord, we pray that he would dwell with us tonight in his spirit. God, that uh, your word would be at work amongst us and that you would give us a very clear and real sense of who Jesus is and what he's like and what it means to be united to him and to be a part of his people. God, be with us now. Bless us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um. I don't know how into it you might be, but one of the biggest reality TV shows that ever was uh, was Survivor. And if, in case you don't know the kind of the premise of the show, it's that you put all these strangers in this sort of wilderness location in kind of three phases. The first phase, kind of a head-to-head competition. Second phase, you put them on teams. Third phase, those teams have gotten whittled down and there's only five survivors, right? And then those people start to compete some more. And the highest rated TV season of Survivor ever was in 2001. Show of hands, 
Who was eating solid food then? Right? It's a while ago, right? <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> right. Highest rated TV series of the show ever. Like, the survivors had done the first two parts of the competition, and it's down to the last three contestants. Uh, there was Colby. Or no, there's Keith, who was sort of the villain of the season. At least, can you hit Keith for me for a minute? Where's Keith at? Wario. He was the Wario of the season. Uh, he'd beaten all these contestants. Nobody liked him. He was this chef. He was kind of mean and bossy and kind of gruff. Nobody liked Keith. And then there's Tina. Yes, she was the Princess Peach of the season. Popular with the beaten contestants. Very good at all the games. A clear favorite to win. And then there's Colby. Mario, my man, who's immune from elimination in this final, one of these final rounds, but he's got to decide who does he eliminate. Does he eliminate Tina, who's been his friend, who's been with him through a ton of the competition, they've been helpful together, or does he eliminate Keith, Wario, who's very kind of mean, nobody will vote for him, and part of the deal with the last uh, phase of all these things is that the, the survivors that have gotten kicked off, they're the people who vote for who is the final survivor. And so you want the person you're going head-to-head against to be someone that those people don't like. And so Colby's got this chat task. Does he eliminate Tina, who all these other survivors really love, or does he eliminate Keith, who would be an easy person to go head-to-head against if all these other people are going to vote for them? And so... Colby's got to pick friendship or a million dollars. What would you do? <laughs> right. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands on that, right? <laughs> In the end, shocker, Colby eliminates Keith and goes head-to-head with Tina, and he loses to her, and it cost him a million dollars to do so. And I tell you that story... Because I think it illustrates a dilemma that a lot of us face. And it's this, is that really you don't want to be Keith or Colby. You want to be Tina, right? You want to be the person who knows how to exercise their gifts, who can beat people in the head-to-head competition and win, but you also want to be the person who's taking care of people and loving people well enough that they like you and you're part of this community and you're invested in them. You need the, your own kind of diversity of gifts and your ability to use your gifts, and you need the unity of being connected to these people and loving them and having them love you. And it's this hard dilemma that we face because it can feel like, man, I've got to choose between friends or success. And I mean, if there's one thing reality TV gave us, it's the phrase, I didn't come here to make friends, right? (laughs) It's hard to do that. How do you have the ability to exercise your gifts and be with people? Tonight I want to talk about those two things. I want to talk about the diversity of Christ's body and the gifts that are there and how that rubs against us. And I want to talk about the unity of Christ's body. What it means to really be connected to people and care for them and serve them. So what's the diversity of Christ's body? Let's start at the beginning of this. If you could flip it back to the (laughs) scripture, that'd be awesome. (laughs) I love Mario too, but we need this. Um, very first verse here. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Think about the image of the body here. Whose body is Paul talking about here? It's Jesus' body, right? And Paul had a lot of experience with that. In Acts chapter 8, Paul is called Saul at this point, and he's not a Christian, and he's trying to eliminate the church, and he's persecuting Christians, he's helping to murder some. 
he's throwing some in jail, and he's on his way to Damascus, where he's going to throw more Christians in jail, and he's on the road, and Jesus comes to him in this vision, and he says, Saul, Saul, which was his name at the time, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, why are you persecuting my church? No, why are you persecuting all these other individual Christians? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting me, Saul? Jesus so identifies with you. He so identifies with his people that they're counted as actually being a part of his body. I mean, think about what that says about the diversity of the church. And I mean church with a capital C. That Christianity is the only major religion that doesn't have an ethnic or geographical or language kind of center. It's a worldwide religion. There are Christians who speak Mandarin and Pashto and Swahili and Spanish and French. There are mentally disabled Christians that are brilliant Christians. There are Christians who are extremely rich, Christians who are extremely poor. Any ethnicity, any nationality, any race falls into Christianity because what unites Christians is not ethnicity or race or language. What unites Christians is Christ. There is hands and His feet and His voice in the world. And that can be hard for us. Because even though we come from a culture that, because of the legacy of Christianity, celebrates diversity, we also struggle with diversity. And I'll just mean ethnically, but even just people that are a little bit like us, but are not quite like us. And this is really where the rubber meets the road for a lot of us. Because here's our temptation. Regular church is hard. And we feel like, you know, I've been working all week. I don't have any control when I go to normal church of who shows up at that church and what songs they play. And if the sermon is going to be good or boring or about something that interests me. And at the end of the week, I feel like I need some me time. You know, like Saturday is my play day. And Sunday is the day when I need to like work. Maybe I don't want to go to an actual church. Maybe I'm going to go on Saturday into the mountains and I'm going to read my favorite passages from the Bible and I'm going to listen to some worship music. And if I'm feeling like super communal, I'm going to invite some of my favorite people to join and be with me. But I don't want to get dressed up and drive out to a real church and suffer through the songs and the sermon and the people. I don't, all these things I don't know and have control over. I mean, and then burn through my, my work time on the weekend. Because if I'm going to do church, I want to do it on my terms. I mean, that's kind of our tendency, right? But God in His brilliance says, no. No, you've got to do it on my terms. Look, you need to be around uncool, awkward people that are not like you. You need to have no control of the music. You have control over the music the rest of the week. Right? You need to have no control over what's talked about. You need someone to walk you through Scripture and read the parts of Scripture that you wouldn't read on your own. You need people that are tough to learn how to actually love real people. You need difficult people. You need other sinners who don't sin in the way that you like to sin to sharpen you and for you to learn how to love those folks. Part of being a member of the church is practicing that doesn't naturally come to sinners like us which is submitting my concerns and my preferences below Christ's concerns and below the concerns of the rest of these people here. It means that I'm not here to consume and take the best experience that I possibly can. It means that the church will never live up to all of my expectations, even do everything according to my taste. And the sooner that we die to those things, the better. 
Because here's the beauty of stepping out of my preferences and into the diversity of the church. That the more diverse the church body is, the more you stop thinking that God is just like you and loves just like you and looks for people that are just like you. Which is why RUF can't be your church. We're a ministry of the church. If you're serving in RUF, you're ministering through the church in some way. But, you know, we're a room full of 18 to 22-year-old people, for the most part, me and Teresa, goddess, <laughs> but who are all in college. You need to be around old people. I mean, like, really old people who've persevered through hard things in life. You need to be around, like, the middle-aged couple who are going to the 9 to 5 and just slogging it out in a tough job. You need to be around other college students who are like you and can walk with you through stuff. You need to be around high schoolers who are thinking about the next thing and you can give them a little something. And you need to be around like infants, like babies, who are 100% pure need because there's no better living illustration of what it's like to be a Christian than a baby. Because you need God as a father who loves you and takes care of you. We just need radically different groups of people in our lives and that kind of diversity is the thing that we most need to learn how to be a part of the church and it's the thing that can most cut against our preferences and what we most kind of want on our own. And nobody got this better than C.S. Lewis. Uh, When he wasn't an Oxford Don, he also was writing amazing Christian fiction. And one of the things that he wrote was a little book called The Screwtape Letters, which if you've never read is really good. But if you don't know, the premise of this book is this older devil, uh, Screwtape, writing to a younger devil... Wormwood on how to tempt their patient, who's a Christian, out of the control of the enemy, which if you're the devil is God. And in one of these letters, Screwtape is telling Wormwood that he needs to tempt his patient away from real community. And this is what he says. Annalise, could you skip over to that? Yeah. Yes, this is it. Awesome. Um, when your patient goes to worship with other Christians, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he's hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty hard on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew actually contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. Remember, the enemy is God. No matter, your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or a double chin, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion is somehow ridiculous. Do you hear how brilliant that is? That what Lewis is saying is that so often we think that what's holding me back from growing and getting this connection to God that I want to get is all those people out there who are not like me, who are demanding my time, who are driving me crazy, who treat me not like I'd like to be treated, who wear weird clothes, who are not as fun as I would like them to be. What most of us think we need to grow is to get away from those kinds of people or to get like, more knowledge, like more theology, maybe more insight into me and how I tick. But what the Bible is saying is that more than insight, more than cool, fun people that are just like us, what we need is real community. 
We need relationships with people who push on us, who have demands on us, who are not like us. Because that kind of diversity is what it's like to actually be united to Jesus. So if that's the diversity of God's people, what is the unity? What's the unity of the, the body? Look at the last few verses here. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Look, y'all, what this is saying is that when someone is a Christian, they are no longer primarily finding their identity in a particular state, a particular ethnicity, a particular gender identification, that a Christian is primarily a member of this ultimate identifying body, the body of Christ. And that doesn't mean those other things go away. What it means is those things are taken and refined and sanctified, made holy through participation in Jesus. They're brought under Jesus and perfected in Him. Which is why the beauty of the church is unity in diversity. That because of the gospel, you can finally be yourself. You can be your ethnicity, your gender, your socioeconomic class, and have those things refined through Jesus, and those things not be the biggest thing, but Jesus be the biggest thing. So you have to pursue those things and hold those things up, but what's given to you as your identity is a gift in Christ. And because of the gospel, you can finally be with other people who are really, really, really not like you. Because all that other stuff is secondary and Jesus is primary. And this gets a little mysterious, but bear with me because we're dealing with God. And if God is real, then He's going to be mysterious. But the church is where Jesus' body is made manifest through very real people. The fundamental nature of the church, from an earthly point of view, is that connection between these people. That the church is this new, new humanity, a new nation, this new humanity that's put under this new Adam of Jesus, which means the church, if I'm a part of it, says that I've got to get along with you, and you've got to get along with me, and we've got to love each other and sacrifice for one another, regardless of what I think of you. Because Jesus is our primary deal. And that's real fellowship. Which means that when you show up at a church or a ministry, it's not really about you. And what you can get out of these people. Instead it's about what you can give to those people. Church membership and being committed to church membership is important because we need real people to love. That means that you need to pick a solid, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving church and just commit to going to that regularly. And when you get there, you need to talk to someone and ask them, Hey, what can I do for this place? How can I serve this place? Do not expect that to be glamorous you're probably going to get saddled with childcare or helping to set up communion. You're probably not going to get asked to do announcements or do the sermon. Look, you can't... <laughs> That's definitely true. Um, <laughs> look, you can't, but you can't live your life waiting for this perfect church to come along any more than you can live your life waiting for the perfect person to date. That you're part of this body. You're connected to it. And you shouldn't ask what's in it for me. You should ask, what can I give? How can I serve? How can I help these people flourish and grow in Christ? Switching the metaphors a little bit, we just have to stop dating the church. 
You can't just kind of flip in and out. But you actually need to commit and get engaged to the church and say, warts and all, I'm going to be a part of this and love it. Because you need the church for your spiritual flourishing. You need the church to know God and to grow in God. The Bible has no categories for a purely one-to-one, just you and God personal relationship. Driving to the mountains, journaling, reading your Bible, listening to worship music can occasionally be helpful. But here's the danger when we make that the main thing. That it's so easy to read the parts of the Bible that I like to read. And it's so easy to pray on my own and when I'm on that mountaintop and listening to my favorite worship music. It's easy to be a Christian when it's all about your preferences. Like, oh man, I'm crazy about God. He does everything I want Him to do. Look, you can be crazy about God, but the church and God come as a package deal. And you know what I've found to be very difficult in that? But really, really good. Is that as good as reading the Bible is and praying is, and you know, I'm all for those things, that it is really rich and really necessary to be in community and learn how to forgive other people and how to repent to other people and how to be forgiven when I've hurt someone and how to confront a friend when they're being an idiot and how to have longings that are just not going to get met anytime soon and to have that with other people and let them carry me in that. And you can't get that by yourself on a mountain reading your Bible alone. It's just so, so difficult to be with people that get on your last nerve and are like a pebble in your shoe. And yet it is so, so necessary to be with them and to be committed with them, say after a hard breakup or when a housing situation falls through and it's messy. And I want to suggest to you, like, what if that's the point? Think of this like this. I know some of y'all are taking, like, labs. What if the sermons that you hear in church or hear here are like the, the lecture in a lab? And if you just went to the lab and got the lecture, but you didn't go to the actual lab part, you wouldn't do that well in that class, would you? Like, that wouldn't go well for you. To sit and listen to a sermon here and then not participate in community and not to love people and be patient with people and work at friendship and work at caring for people that are not like you is like going to the lecture in a lab and then never going to the actual lab part and learning all the bones or doing the titration. Is that how you say it in chemistry? I don't know. I took chemistry in like 2004. But you need to do that. You have to apply some of these things at some point. Because here's the beauty of the church. is The beauty of the church is that the place where people see your lust and people see your greed and your workaholism and your arrogance and your love of networking over your love of friendship. And they love you in that. And they call you out on it. And they're patient with you in that. That's where you grow. And the only way to do that is to commit to the kind of unity where you grow out of your own preferences and you grow to love the people that are in front of you. And man, this is so true of my story too. I mean, I remember when I was in seminary, I convinced Katie to commit to this church that we were part of for five years. And within like three weeks of committing to that church, I realized that I 
hated the sermons. Like, hated them. And I was, like, in school in St. Louis to be the guy who, like, gave sermons. Like, this was, like, my deal, right? But Katie, because she loves me, told me, you've made vows to these people. You cannot just leave. You're committed to them. And you know what? For the next few years, I got very, very, very little out of any of the sermons. But I grew a ton. Because when it quit being about me and my preferences, it could finally be about the people in front of me. And so what that meant was I got to walk with a friend who was my age, who'd been married for like two years and got divorced. It meant that I could see this 90-year-old lady named Vivian who would come up to you and she'd remember your name every single time. And I would have never met her anywhere in my regular life. It meant that I got to know this other older lady who was super into astrology and she had one eye that would look this way and one eye that would look that way. (laughs) And she loved to come up to me and Katie and say um, kind of like uh, inappropriate stuff to her and I about being newlyweds, if you know what I mean. (laughs) But she still to this day sends us cards when it's our wedding anniversary. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I would never have gotten any of that stuff if I had dumped on that church and just gone to the coolest, best like preacher in St. Louis. I would have missed out on Vivian. I would have missed out on my friend who got a divorce. Look, community can be hard because it cuts against our preferences. Community is beautiful because you're united in Christ. And you need that to grow. Part of what also is hard about community is that what Paul is getting here was like, with the eye can't be a leg, and the ear can't be a nose. Like, what it's asking is, are you okay with your limitations? Are you okay with the fact that you can't be all things to all people? That you can only be the person that God made you to be? Look, some of you are incredibly good at organizing stuff. Like, do a spreadsheet, make an event happen, get it done. You've thought through all the logistics. It's incredible. We need you. But you'll never be the life of the party. And you're embarrassed by that. God is not embarrassed by that. God has given you as a gift to the church. But you have limitations, like everyone else. Look, some of you are amazing at showing up at things and hosting things. And when you do... It's like everyone gets way more chill and the lights get more mellow and people start to relax and somehow the music just gets more fun and it feels like the party starts. And people love that. And you love people. But you can love people so much that you're terrible at the necessary conflict that deep relationships require. Look, you're fun, but you're always tiptoeing around people. And the church needs your fun. And you need the church to grow into someone that can deal with people and really deal with people so they know you. Look, can we celebrate the gifts that other people have around us in which we don't have? Can we live with our limitations? Because here's the deal, is that when you ignore your fellow Christians, and you're like, man, that person is just not like me. They are awkward, they tell bad jokes, they're into, like, History, and I'm a math person. Like, they like terrible shows. They've never seen any Netflix. This person was homeschooled. I went to a public school. Like, you know what you're doing when you do that? 
You're shunning the body of Christ. You're shunning this person that Jesus is connected to. And when you do that, what do you miss out on? You miss out on Jesus. Because let's not kid ourselves. Jesus Christ is not like you and me. He loves us. He's united to us. If you're one of His people, He is so for you. But Jesus is just not like us. Look, Hebrews 12 too says this, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look, I have never, ever despised shame. Or, <laughs> I have never endured shame and said, hey, give me a cross because I bet there's glory on the other side of that. I would bet you haven't either. That's Jesus' attitude towards the whole thing, though. Because Jesus is just like you and me. He's not like you and me. I'm sorry. He's for us. That's right. Sorry, I'm preaching half an hour later than I normally do. I normally go to bed at 9.30. Uh, <laughs> He's for us. He understands our suffering. He understands our temptations. He's made like us in every way. But He does not think like 21st century American upper middle class people think. If, he, if you're going to enter into his body, you're going to be challenged. If you're going to enter into his body, then you're going to find love. And you're going to find Jesus. Naturally, we would say, I don't want to be around the awkward people. I don't want to be the, around the hard to love people. I don't want to be around someone that's going to actually test my patience and make me into someone that maybe would be a little bit more patient. And to love Jesus and to know Jesus' love, you've got to commit to that kind of unity. And so I want to end with this. A few years ago, uh, there was a family reunion happening next to a lake right outside of Charleston. And according to the news article, uh, this family reunion, and I have to include this because it's like pretty funny, they were eating roast pork and dancing the Macarena. Um, (laughs) Makes no sense why you'd include that other than it's hilarious. Uh, But these people were hanging out, having a family reunion, kind of partying next to this lake in Charleston, when suddenly this snorkeler bursts out of the bushes next to them, and he's clutching his left arm, or what's left of it, because there's this blood gushing out, and they have no idea what's going on. His arm is totally gone, like totally gone. Luckily, five of the people at this family reunion are nurses, and so they stabilize him, they call the paramedics. According to the news article, one of the, the people in the family reunion, a guy named Jerome Ben, a man Jerome, traces this bloody trail that the sorcerers left through the tree line back to the shore of the lake, and he sees this pool of blood in the sand, and about 25 feet out in the water in front of him is the eyes of this giant 12-foot-long, 600-pound alligator with the guy's arm in its mouth. <laughs> And the guy's like, oh, dang. <laughs> so a few minutes later, they've called not just the paramedics, but you know the police. And these people, the police run out with a rifle. They shoot this gator. They swim out to the gator body, and they pull this 12-foot, 600-pound dinosaur to the shore. They cut him open. They pull out the arm. According to the rescue squad captain, the arm was not that chewed up <laughs> like you think it would be. 
they immediately throw the arm into somebody's cooler with like hot dogs and Coke and ice, and they truck the guy off to the hospital to try to reattach the arm. Why do all these people, like the family reunion, the, uh, these other picnicker people who are randomly around there, the police, the paramedics, the ambulance driver, the emergency room staff, why do they go to all this trouble to kill the 600-pound alligator, go out to a lake, get the arm out of the gator's stomach, ruin a perfectly good cooler, right? Because you're not going to use that again. <laughs> to try to reattach this guy's arm once it's been bitten off by an alligator. Why go through all that trouble? Because an arm apart from the body is dead. It's useless. Look, for some of you who profess to be Christians tonight, you're dabbling in the community of the church. Like, you're really not that connected. It's inconvenient. It's messy. It's awkward. And what I would just ask is, how's that going for you? My guess is that it's hard to feel close to God if you're not close to His people. That you're like this arm that's cut off from the body. And what you need to do is to be reattached. And so what I would say is come and commit yourself to God's people. And learn more of what it's like to live with Jesus. And be challenged by Jesus. And become like Jesus. And understand what it means that Jesus has really died for sinners. Of whom you're a part. And live into that kind of community. And, and grow. And live. Because we need you. And you need us. Because we all need Jesus. We are part of his body. We're broken. We're messy. We have gifts. We have limitations. But we're part of that body. So let's do that together. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, um, we thank you that you've given your life for our lives. And we pray, Lord, that even though you're not like us, God, that you would make us like you. Make us holy. Help us to love one another. God, give us hearts that love you above all things. And God, we know that if that's happening in us, it's because of your work in us. Lord, help us to bear with one another. Help us to be patient with each other. Help us to pray for each other, to forgive one another. Help us to love one another, all because we see how much you've loved us. We ask all these things in your good and precious name. Amen.